0: Uh, Our our public uh, reading of scripture today comes from the same passage we were in last week, Luke chapter 23. So if you have your Bibles on your phones or devices or or a physical copy, go ahead and turn to to Luke chapter 23. we will just be a few verses uh, further along than we were last week. Uh, Specifically, I'll be reading verses 35 through, through 43. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. In April 1994, a Wisconsin pastor, Roy Ratcliffe, was summoned to Columbia Correctional Facility in Portage, Wisconsin, told that there was a prisoner there that wanted to be baptized. He knew little little less than that so he went and he had never been in a prison before He pastored a very small little community very small little church very nervous so he entered this room as he recollected and uh, a door across the way a prisoner entered very unassuming gentleman and Roy was very nervous and kind of got the courage up to say I hear you want to be baptized and that was the first exchange between uh, the person who he would come to refer to as my friend Jeff and this was uh, Jeffrey Dahmer who killed 17 men between 1978 and 1991 pretty, pretty brutally. Jeff uh, confessed to all those killings. He was sentenced to 17 consecutive life sentences. And as he was in prison, uh, the Spirit of God began to work in Jeff's life. He began to wrestle with what did that mean in his relationship with God, and he wanted a pastor to help him. He think He, he thought he was beginning to understand the gospel. So Roy began to meet for Bible studies with Jeffrey Dahmer. And Roy wanted Jeff to know, even though what he did was horrific and he should pay the price and he should be in jail, that God's grace was bigger than his sin. He wanted him to understand the gospel and eventually he felt like Jeff got it and Jeff really understood it. And so Roy baptized him in a whirlpool that was used to treat the injuries of the prisoners. And so he, he dunked Jeffrey Dahmer under the water, brought him back up, hugged him and he said, welcome brother Jeff to the family of God. Jeffrey Dahmer was notorious, and he, he, uh, NBC landed an interview with him shortly before he was killed by a fellow prisoner. And Jeff said this to Stone Phillips, I've since come to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true creator of heavens and earth. I've accepted him as my Lord and Savior, and I believe that I, along with everyone else, will be accountable to him. This story is true, Then Jeffrey Dahmer is right now in the presence of the Lord. How do you feel about that? If you're honest, you probably have mixed emotions. At least I do. There's, a, there's an offensiveness to this. Stories like this expose our wrestling with this concept of grace. We think grace is a wonderful idea, especially when it applies to ourselves. But it has to have limits, right? A guy like Jeffrey Dahmer doesn't deserve to be with god that's the entire point that's grace we're going to dive into that today we're in the second week of our series called last words Uh, this series will carry us through the season of Lent, the 40 days that lead up to our celebration of the resurrection of our lord and savior we're looking at the last seven words or phrases from jesus on the cross last week I took a little time to paint the picture of what crucifixion was, not because I wanted to take us all through that, but because it's important. Setting and context are important. All of these words are powerful, but they're not being spoken from Jesus sitting on a picnic blanket by the Sea of Galilee. They'd still be powerful, but they're way more powerful knowing that they're coming from the cross. As we talked about last week, you die on the cross from asphyxiation. You can no longer push yourself up to breathe, which you have to do every time you breathe on the cross. So each word that Jesus spoke, he has to push him up. He works for it. It's painful. That matters. The first phrase we looked at last week was, Father, forgive them, the soldiers, the jeering crowd, the religious officials. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus let it go. So those of us who follow him need to let it go as well. This week we continue on in the same passage. We just keep moving on in Luke's eyewitness account of the gospel, and we know that the, the two men were crucified on on either side of Jesus. All four gospels or eyewitness accounts tell us that. Only Luke records the conversation and gives us that privilege. We've typically in church world said that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. That's a misnomer because theft was not a capital offense in the Roman Empire. These were more than thieves we don't know what they did but crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst for for slaves for insurrectionists these were likely terrorists of some sort that had killed and murdered people these were bad men we uh, we we come upon the the conversation that luke tells us and we have the one criminal who is piling on we understand that if we go back to last week if you remember the religious officials that are like got you we finally won and they taunt jesus they're talking trash to jesus and they say jesus if you're really the messiah like save yourself you said you're going to save others save yourself so then the roman soldiers hear that they're right here at the foot of the cross right there and they're they're yelling up at jesus talking trash and they're like yeah if you're king of the jews and they put king of the jews to taunt him above him then save yourself and so then this criminal and the audacity he's being crucified He's in horrific pain. The man next to him is being crucified, Jesus. You'd expect a little compassion, but you see the brokenness of this man's heart. He piles on, and he just gives the same taunt. Yeah, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and us, Jesus. Then the other man speaks. Matthew and Mark tell us that, that both of the criminals were insulting Jesus. So this man, the second man, has had a change of heart. And then he speaks, and, and, and we read it a short while ago, but let me repeat it. He says this, don't, don't you fear God, he said. He's talking to, to the other criminal. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Very simplistic, packed with meaning and power. This man, in the short little statement, recognizes who God is. Recognizes who he is, is a broken man who needs salvation. And he recognizes who Jesus is. As innocent. This is the sixth time that someone has declared Jesus innocent from three separate sources. And they're the least likely people. It's like Herod and Pilate and now this criminal are declaring the truth that everyone else is missing. The people that should have seen it didn't get it, even his followers. This man gets it. Why did he have a change of heart? We don't know. We'd be reading into it. But I think we, we can make a reasonable guess. Maybe he knew Jesus. Maybe he had seen Jesus heal people Maybe, but I think it's most likely his change of heart came from, he heard what he just said that we talked about last week. He sees this man fighting for every breath, looking down at the people who stripped him and beat him and are taunting him, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this man had to be like, what is this? Who is this? And is this prayer for me? the man what does he ask Jesus see one he calls him Jesus which is really intimate and the original readers would have seen this this is the only time in all four Gospels that anyone just refers to Jesus as Jesus without a title he's desperate he's just like Jesus remember me when you enter your kingdom again packed with meaning king of the Jews mocking him what kind of king hangs on a cross that, that, that was bizarre to the road, but they're laughing. The religious leaders are laughing. His followers have run for the hills. No king hangs from a cross. But this guy got it. He begins to believe that Jesus' kingdom is coming. And that he has this invisible kingdom. And that Jesus is the doorway of life. Remember me, King Jesus, when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus responds to him. He says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's likely this man was a Jew or or knew the Jewish way of thinking about That one day at the resurrection, far distant, they would be in paradise. Paradise is just a word for place of the righteous. And that's what this man is asking. Jesus, one day, I know I don't deserve it. I'm horrible. But I trust you're my hope. Can I join you one day in the place of the righteous? Jesus does him one better. He says, no, today. Today you will be with me in the place of the rightness, righteous. This is a nice, kind of Disney ending, and they lived happily ever after. Or does it? Does it? If we really understand what's going on, there's an offensive nature to this. This man was a bad man. What if, what if one of the mothers, or a group of the mothers, of people this man had killed were standing there listening to this conversation? How do you think they would have felt? They'd be like, are you are you kidding me? This, he gets off scot-free. He's going to be in the place of the righteous. He doesn't deserve it. Exactly the point. Because that, that's grace. Here's, we, we get all muddled sometimes with our theological terms. Here's a clean way a lot of theologians define these different terms. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. We talked about that last week. Father, forgive them. They deserve to be punished, but forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Remove the punishment. Let it go. That's mercy. We talked about that last night. This is grace. We've moved on to this concept. And grace is getting a free gift we don't deserve. This idea of grace is so intoxicating and beautiful and wonderful. It's woven into the fabric of our language everywhere. We say grace at meals. We're gracious or grateful. We congratulate. We pay gratuity. We can be gratuitous. We can have a fall from grace. We can be an ingrate. We can be a disgrace. If we commit an act of treason, we are persona non grata. It's everywhere, this idea of grace, and yet no one really understands what it means, and we wrestle with it. Philip Yancey wrote this incredible book called What's Amazing About Grace. It changed my life literally when I read it, and it's still shaping me as I ponder it. Yancey gives it a shot. and says this, Grace means there's nothing I can do to make God love me more, nothing I can do to make God love me less. It means that I, even I, who deserve the opposite, Am invited to take place at the table in God's family. Why is this concept so difficult? Why did we, When we heard that story about Jeffrey Dahmer, maybe there's a select few of you that are like, that's beautiful and wonderful. I'm guessing the majority of us are like, that's weird. That's odd. I don't know what I think about that. Why is that? I think it's because we live in a graceless world. We live in a world that is absolutely driven by the opposite of grace, driven by metrics and performance and bookkeeping every realm, education scientific theory employment sports driven by performance even our relationships what have you done for me lately i think it's one of the reasons as you all know because i give tons of sports analogies i love sports i think it's one of those reasons because there's a scoreboard i like it i know where we stand And it's totally dependent on my performance. I like that. Win or lose, at least I know what's going on. The first time I got an opportunity to preach was many decades ago, and I had joined a staff of a church in Madison where I was at for almost 18 years, and we were a church of about 400, and I was added to the staff as the youth pastor and the lead pastor was like, hey, would you like an opportunity to preach, and I was like, that would be amazing. And Um, I'm sure it was a a horrible sermon. But I got up there, and I gave it a go. And I was really nervous and sweaty. And smaller room than this, but not a small room. And so I got up. I start going and preaching. And at the back of the room, I see our youth group walk in with some of the volunteers. And I'm thinking, oh, no. And what they did is they sat down quietly. And I would give a joke, probably bad jokes like I do here, and give points. And, like, this is what's happening in the passage. And then they would hold up scorecards. Like, (laughs) what? Like a two, you know, or like a three. Every once in a while, I mean, they, they, like a seven. And you know, I'm, I have to keep composure. I'm already super nervous. I've never done this before, but I also liked it. I like it. There's just something in me that likes to keep score. I like the scoreboard. It's the, it's the graceless world thing that we're dealing with. And That analogy when we watch the Olympics, I mean, that's really, that's what the Olympics are. Figure skating or gymnastics, right? You perform and a score comes up. And I think that's so woven into our broken hearts and psyche and our culture. We don't know anything else. We're always performing. And we're looking for the grades. And the really broken lot of us are giving ourselves grades. (laughs) That's, it's just so destructive. To our hearts in the way that we are made psychologists tell us that humans have a deep desire to get what they deserve and deserve what they get we just that's how we're wired we don't like handouts we don't like free stuff we're like where are the strings attached we're skeptical What's well, it's no wonder since we live in a gracious world with hearts that are hardwired for performance when we encounter stories like jeffrey dahmer and stories like the thief on the cross There's an offensiveness to them. It doesn't correlate to how we normally do life. Yancey, in another little article he wrote, I love the title of this article, it's called The Atrocious Mathematics of the Gospel. And he said the Gospel, the math is bad math. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. It's not good bookkeeping. He has this quote, If the world could have been saved by good bookkeeping, it would have been saved by Moses and not Jesus. Performance-based stuff, metrics, the scoreboard, works relatively well in education, science theory, certainly sports, the economy. It doesn't work in our relationship with God. It doesn't. If we want to give it a go, good luck with a holy God. It doesn't work. When we encounter our relationship with God, we're wholly dependent on this idea of grace the even said even though he wrote a whole book about it he said well in the end of the day good luck trying to define grace you gotta you gotta experience it you gotta taste it you gotta see it i think that's where the arts come into play and storytelling and jesus knew that jesus was an amazing storyteller and in luke 15 eight chapters earlier we're told he's surrounded by folks that were considered sinful were always with him and then the religious leaders the self-righteous who were telling Jesus that he was, he was basically going to hell because he's hanging out with sinful people. And Jesus is like, this is a good teaching moment. <laughs> so he tells these three stories, and the third is perhaps is his well-known, and you've probably heard it in some degree. But let me recount it for you. Because I think it does better than defining grace. It just shows us what grace is. There's a son who comes to his father who is wealthy and demands his inheritance. He's a young man. Let's say he's in his early 20s. This was unheard of, it'd be unheard of in our day, to be honest, really unheard of in a a patriarchal, aristocratic, ancient Near East world. You're basically saying, Dad, you are dead to me. And his father, instead of just laughing at him and shunning him and kicking him out of the house, is a generous man and gives him one-third of his estate, which was considerable. Everything's land-based then, so his original readers would have known. The father just doesn't go to the bank and draw a check. He has to go and sell land. He has to work for this request. So he does it, he gives his boy this massive inheritance, and his son leaves and blows it all in short order on wine and women and frivolous things. Hits rock bottom, a recession comes, he's in a pigsty, he's eating pig food, and then he begins to do old-fashioned bookkeeping in his head. Okay, well I've messed up clearly, I'm desperate. If I go back to the old man, he's a generous guy. I know he's not gonna ever take me back as a son. But I can do this and this and this and this. This is my 10-point plan. I can work for it and maybe, maybe work my way back up. That's what he's thinking. He's thinking like all of us. He's a realist. So he puts his tail between his legs and he makes the long journey home. And then we have this verse. If you're ever wondering who God is, if you doubt it, just turn to this verse. This is who our father is. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. That is grace. And it's an astounding verse, especially from a first century perspective, because no one really ran. And aristocratic, wealthy, older men never ran. They weren't supposed to show any skin. It was below them. They were wearing kind of long robes. So to run, he would have to hike up his robe, show all kind of ankle and calf, and run, and for us, just to bring you into the real time, that would be like any of you sh- streaking down the down the road or running in your tidy whities That's what would have would have been like. Just to be honest, that's the they, when they heard that detail, that they would have caught that detail. The father didn't care. His boys coming home. That's all he cared about. He threw all that to the wind. I don't care. And he races down. And he tackles his boy, and he kisses him all over the face. He's more like a a golden retriever than a distinguished gentleman. My friend Mike, who is an author, has this line. He says that the father is a lovesick, dignity-shunning stampede of grace. Man. The son, he starts, like any of us, starts trying to do his bookkeeping speech. And here's here's how I picture it. Shh puts his finger on it, and is like, shh, stop it, silly boy. You could never work your way back. The bookkeeping doesn't work. But I'm going to do you one better. Go get his clothes and throw them away and get him new clothes. Go get him the old shoes, throw them away. Get him new shoes. Get new rings and jewelry for my boy. Go get that big fat pig and slay it. We're going to have a feast, and let's draw him a bubble bath because he smells. <laughs> Here's the deal. Here's what the first century people would understand, what I want us to understand. The boy was seeking mercy, and he got grace. He was seeking mercy, which is wonderful, as we talked about last week, but he got grace. Here's how I want to say it, and I hope this sticks with us. I think it's true. At least it is for me. Grace is offensive. For those of us who want to earn God's favor and it's amazing to those of us who realize we can't. Grace is offensive to those of us who who want to earn God's favor and that's many of us in the room including this guy after all these years but it's amazing when we realize we can't. C.S. Lewis, great apologist, Oxford scholar, he went to a British conference on comparative religions once. I, I tracked down the story. This is the best I could track it down. And he went in, and everyone was arguing. And apparently he said, hey, what's the rumpus about? I guess that's how British people talk. And they were arguing about what was, what was distinct and different about Christianity. And he said, oh, that's easy. What do you think his answer was? Grace. I think that's true. You think of every other world religion, every way of thinking about God... The way of Jesus is the only one built on the foundation of grace. The Apostle Paul got that. He was a top-flight scholar. He was a a CPA in bookkeeping, if you will, from a religious mindset. He was a Pharisee at the top of his class. And God wrecked his life with grace in an incredibly powerful way. And he writes this letter to the Ephesians, which I think is one of our most important letters, particularly chapter 2. And Paul tells us we're all dead in our sins. We're helpless. Dead people don't do anything. And Paul says, by the way, if you want to get what you deserve, good luck with that. Because we deserve God's wrath. And then these two incredible words. They're separated in the English translations, but in the Greek they're together. These two magical, wonderful words, but God. But God. And this is how he says it. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with christ even when we were dead in our transgressions here it is it is by grace you have been saved and god raised us up with christ seated us with him in the heavenly realms in christ jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in christ jesus he tells us again in case we didn't get it for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves it is the gift of god not by works so that no one can boast it is by grace we have been saved unequivocally clear we cannot earn god's favor the bookkeeping doesn't work our only hope is grace so god institutes brand new math and the math is grace it doesn't work it's atrocious math undeserved favor but grace is not cheap it's not cheap it's costly but here's the beauty grace is free Grace is free. The criminal got it, didn't he? (laughs) He's our model. He understood who God was. He understood who he was. He looked to Jesus for life. He knew that was his only hope. Grace is offensive if we want to earn God's favor. But it is amazing when we realize we cannot. We need another story. Danish author uh, Karen Blixen, she wrote Out of Africa, she wrote this other little short story that has turned into several films. Uh, and it's called uh, Babit's Feast. And uh, this, this story has long haunted me, because I've been saying this whole time, it's so hard to define grace. We need the artist to help us. And I think that's behind her writing of, of this story. So let me recap it a little bit for you. The, the setting is this Scandinavian impoverished fishing village the camera scans in on this lutheran very fundamentalist sect they're very small led by this guy called the dean and they all wear black and they don't do anything fun they never smile the only thing they eat is uh, boiled cod and gruel and you make the gruel by boiling bread and drinking the water (laughs) it's just horrible he has two beautiful uh girls uh, martine and uh, philippa and uh, they're, they're courted by a French Cavalry officer and a famous vocalist from Paris and they're like, nope, not in this life. So 15 years pass, the dean has, has died. These two sisters are entering middle age. They're trying to keep this small but crumbling sect together and they get a knock on the door. And it's this woman, Babit, she's from France. The Civil War's broken out. Sadly, her husband and her son have been killed. The, 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 the Parisian vocalists had given her their address and said, maybe these two ladies can help you. She was desperate. And they're like, eh, we don't really do hospitality. Uh, I don't know. And she's like, please, I'll do anything. And they're like, well, if you cook for us and clean, maybe. But you have to make only boiled cod and gruel. <laughs> She's like, okay. Twelve years pass. Uh, a friend of Babette's in France had always just entered her name into the lottery. She gets a letter telling her she's won the lottery. So she's this suddenly incredibly wealthy woman, and the sisters are crestfallen because she's cooked for them and cleaned for them, and they would never admit it. But they've become friends with her, and they think certainly she's going to head back to Paris. She assures them that's not the case. Everyone she knows there is gone, died. This is her home she makes one request she says let me make you a feast the dean they were going to celebrate the hundred year anniversary of his birth they were going to have a feast and serve boiled cod and gruel and she's like can i cook for you can i cook for you that's my wrong question like ah we don't really do that she's like i've never asked you anything so they got together and they said let's do it but when we go to the feast no one smile and no one give compliments (laughs) That was their plan so she goes at it and ships begin to arrive and large animals getting off the ships like a large pig and a cow and pheasant and these exotic sea creatures, even a live turtle waddles off the ship. And Babette takes them back into her kitchen and is begging and cooking and making this feast and finally the night comes of the feast. It's snowy. There's a special guest, the French cavalry officer from long ago. The suitor has now become a general. His aunt's still barely alive and part of the sec. He's going to accompany her. Her. So all twelve of them fight through the snow, make it, and they enter, and they're blown away. It's gorgeous. There's fine china. There's candles. There's cutlery. There's evergreen. It smells wonderful. And they, but they can't admit it. They don't smile. The general does though. He's expecting a very poor meal, and he's like, hmm, interesting. So in, everybody sits down, and the courses come, course after course after course after course of the most amazing food. The general is like, this is the best turtle soup I've ever had in my life. And he's dined in the finest restaurants in France. He tastes the champagne. He's like, I think this is $400 champagne. You gotta be kidding me. And he's looking around straight faces from all of them who had ever only eaten boiled cod and gruel. And then the main course comes. The general, he takes one bite and his mind explodes and as our senses do, it takes him back to memory decades ago to this little restaurant called Café Anglais. And this famed dish served there, Calais en -en Saccumphage is what it was called. And he's like, could it be? It was created by this genius female chef that had mysteriously disappeared. You getting the story now? He's so overcome, he stands up and, you know, clanks his glass and he he makes an impromptu speech about grace. He says this. All of us have been told that grace is to be found in the universe, but in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be finite. But the moment comes when our eyes are open and we see and realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us, but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. The last scene is the kitchen. Uh, Babide is exhausted. She's sitting in a chair. The dirty pans are all around her, and the sisters make their way in. They're expecting she's leaving. And she laughs at him. She's like, I'm not leaving. What would I go back to? I have no friends or family there, and I have no money. And they're like, what? You have no money? What happened to your money? And she's like, oh, I spent it all on the meal. End of the story. <laughs> what do you think about that story? Part of it's offensive, and part of it's amazing. It just depends on what you think about grace. On the screens, we just need more help from artists here, is Dutch master Rembrandt. This is my favorite painting in the world. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. It resides at the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg. It's on my bucket list to go there, if anybody would like to pay my way. (coughs) Hint, hint. Rembrandt's considered one of the world's greatest painters. This is his masterwork. He was messing around with this story and this painting for all of his life. You get his journals, and he has all kind of drawings and sketches of this, different ways he envisioned it. He had a painting early in his life of the sun in the brothel, and he put his face, Rembrandt's face, is the face of the sun. He saw this as his story. I keep a reproduction in my office because I see it as my story. But I want you to look to, to my right and the tall gentleman staring down. Rembrandt scholars are almost certain that's his depiction of the older brother. He has that kind of older brother look, doesn't he? Which <laughs> just kind of disgust. Here's my truth. I don't know if it's your truth. I certainly, at many points in my life, relate well to the younger son. But I more naturally relate to the older son. Because he understands what it's like to live in a graceless world. This is the son... It was the good son. He never missed school while his brother was always tardy and delinquent. He got straight A's. He got scholarships to college. He came home and worked the family business for 14-hour days while his brother was out playing around and messing around and then got that stupid inheritance and then wasted it. We get him. We understand what he's feeling. But here's the catch, and here's the really frightening thing. At the end of Jesus' story, he's on the outside looking in. And here's why he thought he could earn the father's favor he thought he had to earn the father's favor the younger son realized his only hope was grace what about us are we the are we the thief that that mocks the king are we the one that turns to him in faith is our only hope are we the Are we the Scandinavian sect that has this incredible meal and doesn't break a smile? Grace passes right in front of us? Or are we the general that understands what's going on and raises the glass in a toast? Are we the older son that wants to earn his keeper? Are we the broken down, runaway son that falls into the arms of a father who will never let him go? Which are we? As we approach our relationship with God, it's so woven into all of us, including myself, to ask the question, what do I need to do to span that divide we sense is there? What do I need to do? And the gospel and the cross tells us absolutely nothing. You could never do enough. That bookkeeping doesn't work. So our relationship with God is given to us as a gift in grace. It's what Jesus has done. That is offensive to those of us who want to earn God's favor. But it is amazing to those of us who realize we cannot. The thief, or not the thief, rather the criminal, is our model. What a weird model to have. But he shows us what to do. Recognize who God is. Recognize who we are. And look to Jesus for life. Many of you have done that. We're going to celebrate that at the communion table to look back and remember that in a second. And some of you haven't. Some of you are wrestling with that. Some of you are wrestling in real time with with grace. But maybe today, maybe this moment, you got it for the first time. And you're ready like the prodigal son. You're ready like the criminal to turn in one simple act. There's nothing you need to do. You just turn to Jesus and look to him for life. And you accept the free gift. If you haven't done that, I want to encourage you to do that. I want to close with a quote from, from another author who's who shaped my life, uh, Brennan Manning, uh, the late Brennan Manning. He struggled with alcoholism until his dying day. His autobiography is my... The title of it is my favorite saying, all is grace. And these are uh, some of the very last words that Brennan ever wrote on earth. He says this, My message unchanged from more than 50 years is this, God loves you unconditionally, as you are and not as you should be, because nobody is as they should be it is a message of grace a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same rate wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5 a grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck towards the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party no ifs ands or buts this grace is indiscriminate compassion it works without asking anything of us Grace is sufficient, even though we huff and we puff with all our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. Grace is enough. Jesus is enough. God, we uh, we just thank you for that reality. This broken down dude thanks you for that reality. I have no hope apart from your grace, and that's why I love to come to the table every single Sunday. Sunday, lest I think that I am bringing something to the party. I come empty-handed. And I'm reminded that our only hope, my only hope, is your grace. That's offensive if we think we can earn your favor. Oh, but it's amazing when we realize we can. And I pray as we come to the table today, God, that could be a a celebration of the amazing grace that is given us freely in your son, Jesus. Uh, We pray these things in Christ's name and all God's people said.